Good morning, Grace. Beautiful morning that we have this morning that the Lord has brought to us. We'll be reading from Exodus 2 and directly go into our responsive psalm right after that. From Exodus 2, starting at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. There's a, a book title from uh, 1932. The author is Walter Pitkin. Not really all that familiar with the author uh, or, or the book title, but it, it, the title is Life Begins at 40. <laughs> Moses, Moses hits the age 40 now as we come to this passage in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. I don't know if... Life will begin. Now, let's put, let, maybe something a little more 
thoughtful, certainly a little more philosophical from Carl Jung. This is also 1931, he wrote this. Uh, the Stages of Life. The nearer we approach to the middle of life, and the better we have succeeded in entrenching ourselves in our personal attitudes and social positions, the more it appears as if we had discovered the right course and the right ideals and principles of behavior. And for this reason, we suppose them to be eternally valid and make a virtue of unchangeably clinging to them. I should have maybe made a slide of that for you. The closer we get to midlife and the better that we have entrenched ourselves in our way of thinking, in our way of living, it validates to ourselves and we hold on to it more eternally and perpetually that this is the right way to live and so we won't let go. God's going to break into Moses' life. We'll say midlife, but it's maybe two-thirds or so. But he turns 40. And God is going to radically turn him around, pivot his life at this moment in crisis. And we read this in the narrative form. What about our lives? Where are we? Well, perhaps we're not yet 40. Perhaps we're well beyond 40. Perhaps we're right there. But what is God doing in our lives to direct, to shake us up? Well, Moses will we'll kind of highlight these, uh, these verses in uh, several different ways. Verses 11 to 12 will we'll kind of highlight this one as the area of fatality. Not his own, necessarily, although there is a fear of his own. Moses had been raised with all the privileges you know, of the Egyptian royalty. He had been really well-educated, -educa growing up in the palace, and yet there seems to be a, a restlessness internally. He still doesn't quite feel at home, and so he goes looking for his people, his own people, his I don't know if he's even necessarily looking for his mother, his father. It doesn't say so. But we know those stories of people looking for their parents, their biological parents, their parents that brought them into the world. And Moses is like this. What is his background? What is his heritage? He perhaps remembers things as a young boy before being brought to the palace, and he wants to go back. Ethnically, he's a Hebrew, yet culturally, he's an Egyptian. And this creates a huge tension within him. His, his values, his thought processes, his methods are all instilled by academic, military, social, economic institutions of Egypt. On the outside, he's more Egyptian than he is Hebrew. But he wants to go to his people. Now, again, he is highly educated. Acts chapter 7, verse 22 is a, a New Testament, uh, um, well, it's a sermon of Stephen. 
an evangelistic sermon, and he's going through the history of Israel as part of his evangelistic efforts and work, and he gets to Moses and he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. And I suppose that word mighty could summarize his worldview and his, his value estimation, his means and his methods of life. Might is right is the way he appears to be going through life. His strategies, his methods, and tactics are of the world in which he lives. He is a product of his society and of his upbringing. And here he applied those things. He's out visiting his people. Now he had to travel some distance likely to get to the land of Goshen within the Egyptian empire. And he goes and he sees a taskmaster, we might assume, an Egyptian beating up one of his people. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He's, he's judge, jury, and executioner. He's judge dread, all right there. And he took a life. It... it, it well, Moses had a sense of his call, didn't he? he? He knew he was to be the deliverer. He knew he was the Savior. Again, uh, the sermon from Stephen highlights this reality. Acts chapter 7, verse 25. Speaking of Moses, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He supposed. We might say presupposed. He had a sense of calling. His parents had some sense of his calling. They recognized at birth that this was a special boy, a particular child with particular gifts. He was beautiful, tove, good. And it moved his parents to protect and preserve his life. Of course, it took the intervention of God really to make that a reality. But Moses, along the way, has a sense of his purpose, of his calling, but he hasn't quite done it God's way. He's going about his purpose and his calling the way of an Egyptian. And that then not only leads to the fatality of the Egyptian, but uh, the fatality of his, of his career, we might say. Verses 13 and 14, we'll call this a fumble. We've seen a lot of fumbles in the last football season. Uh, fumbles even in calls, perhaps. But verses 13 and 14 go on. When, when he went out the next day, after he had done his dirty work and put the Egyptian in a shallow grave. He went out the next day and there two Hebrews were struggling together, fighting. And he said to the one in the wrong, why would you strike your companion? And he answered, well, who made you prince and judge over us? You going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this is known. Yeah. I mean, he looked, remember, Verse 12, he looked this way and he looked that way. There's some sense of conscience going on, at least premeditated murder. 
He's looking around, seeing if he can get by without, without getting caught. And of course, he didn't, did he? There is this fumble. Moses really thought that his brothers, again, Acts chapter 7, verse whatever it was, uh, verse 25, he really thought that they would understand he's their Savior. He's their deliverer, and they didn't. I mean, the first response, first reaction to his, his efforts of freedom fighting is, well, who made you the leader? Self-appointed. Man's ways aren't God's ways. Moses is an impetuous man at this time. Compulsive, driven and yet impetuous at the same time. He, he got ahead of the Lord. He presumed upon the Lord, and he took matters into his own hands. He presumed upon the Lord by moving forward with, with yes, the task that God had for him, but not waiting for the Lord to open the doors of opportunity. He bashed them open, he thought himself. And the result was fatal to the Egyptian and to the Hebrew peoples as well. Now, in the divine scope of things, we understand that God is working His plan and even working in and through the foibles of His servant Moses. And so in that sense, everything is moving along on time. But from our human experience and our human vantage point, we, we could read this, look at this life scenario, and say, you know what? If Moses had not gotten ahead of God and tried to force the issue, perhaps deliverance for the Hebrews could have come sooner rather than waiting for Moses to go learn his lesson in the wilderness and come back. By forging too far ahead of the Lord, it actually prolonged, perhaps, what could have been accomplished. Now again, we've hold strongly to the sovereignty and providence of God, and this is His plan. But it does also cause us in our responsibilities before Him not to get ahead of Him. And so He, he flees. He becomes the fugitive. And indeed, it has become known, and Pharaoh hears of it and seeks to kill Moses whether it was some kind of brotherly rivalry within the palace, like Cecil B. DeMille makes it out to be, don't know. There's lots of intrigue within the palace with the pharaohs and with their mothers, and uh, it could be. But we don't know if this is Tutmose III or, or Sherry I, or maybe even Ramses II. We, we just honestly don't know yet. We just have to be patient and wait for the archaeology to catch up with the Bible. Moses still has that fight in him, though, doesn't he? Verse 15. I'm sorry, he's flying away. Uh, it's important that he leave, and he has to learn from the Lord, and it means a a relocation. I was going to say a lateral move in his career, but I don't think this is lateral in reality. 
From the human perspective, this, this is not a lateral transition. He's a fugitive fleeing Egypt. He's been trained in the ways of Egypt, and now he needs to be trained in the ways of the Lord. And he'll go to this school in the wilderness. James Boyce quotes a commentator anonymously. Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. 40 years, increments for the life of Moses. And Stephen picks up on this in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7.23, when he was 40 years old, he came to visit his brothers. Acts 7.30, when he was 40 years old, uh, he saw the angel on Mount Sinai. We'll get to that one in Exodus chapter 3. In Acts 7.36, Moses led them in the wilderness for 40 years. But this is a pivot point, and Moses flees to Midian uh, within, within the Abrahamic line of people, the Semitic people. The Midianites would be um, distant cousins of Moses. And so he goes uh, to the area of Midian, which is um, 120 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. I guess I've got to look at it your way. Here's the Dead Sea, 120 miles southwest of the Dead Sea and just north of the Red Sea. He's in the wilderness of Midian. And yet there's a settlement. He gets there, he's at a well, and we're already anticipating because things happen with God's people at wells, already even in the book of Genesis, Jacob's well. And we're reminded from this vantage point of history, Jesus and his well visits particularly that of John chapter 4. What's going to happen? There's a well, there must be people, there's some kind of settlement close by. Well, he's taken the flight, but now he still, we see, has a bit of fight yet in him, verse 16 and 17. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. That's a typical thing, even in Middle East, outer skirts of agricultural areas of the Middle East, you can still see women bearing water and filling water troughs. It was women's work, or children's work, or menial shepherds' tasks. Well, the shepherds, it's interesting how verse 17 puts it, the shepherds, as if we're supposed to know who they are. Everybody knows who they are. They're troublemakers. The shepherds came and drove them away. Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. The, the fight is still there, but now he's not uh, fighting oppressing masters. Now he's fighting women who, uh, men who mistreat women. He, he still is for that underdog. He's still for the oppressed. He's still the defender of the weak. That's in him. This time he doesn't appear to kill anybody. But there is this ongoing problem with the shepherds. And uh, they get back home finally. And Ruel, uh, their fathers, how did you get home so early today? This, is, this, is, this happens every day. They usually get home from work late because the shepherds come and push them away. No names, but they all knew who they were and they knew what the trouble was. Well, this Egyptian dude came, and he saved us. And not only that, he watered 
the sheep. What? Men don't do that. Not men of position, not men of some kind of stature, but Moses the servant watered the sheep. Now, he he has a sense of justice. He has a sense of righteousness, and this is good. We're reminded of the prophet's summary of the Old Testament law. What has God for you? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with your Lord. Moses has the, the doing parts of justice and mercy, but he's got to work on the humbly part yet. It's there. Apparently, he didn't kill anyone this time, but this humility would finally be forged uh, in the exile of his own sojourn in the wilderness of the Lord. Indeed, by the time we get to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, this is, this is now his character. It says in Numbers 12, 3, Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Character transformation and change. But an even greater Savior would give his life in service for his people all the way to death, even death on the cross. And Jesus Himself would say, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the way of the Lord. Moses is a servant, and service is one of the very first uh, topics in God's leadership instruction manual. And, And to be a spiritual leader is to First of all, find some area of humble service. Moses would become a shepherd himself. We'll learn this in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. What a step down for him in one sense. Maybe you remember when Joseph in the book of Genesis brings his family into Egypt to settle in the land of Goshen. And the reason they go to Goshen rather than in the main areas of the empire is because they're shepherds. And Genesis 46, verse 34 says, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. There is a bit of a transition in Moses' career. But this is where God has him and placed him. But with this will be the next movement or scene in his life, and we'll call this part of the narrative family life. Verses 18 to 22. The daughters came home. How is it you got home so soon? An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. He drew water. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he might eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Zipporah is the name of a bird, a warbler. Uh, And and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. He said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Ruel, his own name means friend of God or shepherd of God. Later we'll find out he's got more than one name. He's also known as Jethro. 
And he's, he's a spiritual man. He's the priest of Midian, probably the priest of the Lord, being distant cousin in the Abrahamic line. God consoles Moses, contents Moses in this place of foreign land with a new job, an occupation, and a family. Did the same for Joseph. When Joseph had been, you know, ironically, Joseph had been enslaved by the Midianites and sold to Egypt. Joseph, as he now is second in command, co-regent, vice-regent with Pharaoh himself, he marries and has a family. God consoles him in the land. And yet both of these men, by the names given to their children, you recognize there is still some sense of longing, some sense that I'm not fully home yet. For Gershom here uh, means resident alien, perhaps even lonely stranger. Hmm. You, can, you can have a fine occupation. You can have a beautiful family. You can be content with your place in the Lord and yet still have longings and stirrings, movings within your heart. Something a missing something more. And there is a, a lesson in that none of these things will ultimately satisfy those longings within you. As beautiful and wonderful as these gifts of God and creation are, they, they are not ultimately satisfying. There is a, a distant home, another land for which we long. And that's what Moses is learning. When we read the commentary of Moses' life in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and following, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, of life in Egypt in the royal palace. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward, a heavenly abode, a heavenly Jerusalem. Where is your eye? What is your vision? Where are you seeking the contentment and the satisfaction Verses 23 to 25 make a transition. We're moving away from the life of Moses and now to who's really in control and who's really writing your life story. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The narrative opened with Moses who looked and saw 
and took matters into his own hands. And the narrative now ends with God. A God who hears and remembers and sees and knows. And that's where our confidence is. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he, his ears toward their cry. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we can read of that promise that God gave to them in, in the book of Genesis and several different places of that narrative in life. It is God who is the faithful one. It is the God who will ever keep His promises to His people. But for centuries, the people of God are crying out, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Have you forgotten us? And the answer here is no, he hasn't. But the Lord is patient. And the life of Moses is an example for the nation of why God is patient with them and why redemption tarries. The Lord is patient. The Lord trains his servant. He corrects his servant. He forgives and restores his servant. Even, even Moses, a murderer, premeditated manslaughter, not manslaughter, murder. Manslaughter is a technical legal term, I guess. Different than murder. He's a killer. And yes, even this Moses is restored and forgiven, as would the apostle Paul. In the New Testament, there is no sin, there is no guilt that the Lord will not forgive. But the Lord doesn't waste any time. Or that doesn't mean that He's in a hurry or that He's in a rush. Indeed, with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. Why? That passage goes on to say, He's not willing that you should perish, but come to repentance. Why does the deliverance of His people tarry? So that you have time to come to the place of repentance. No, He, he doesn't waste any span of time. No, no matter the length, and He will incorporate it into His purpose. There is no reason for any one of us to overly drag ourselves down. It's good to be aware. It's good to be contrite and humble in spirit. But not to bedraggle ourselves over and over again. Oh, I, if only I had come to the Lord sooner in my life. Well, yes. But no. There is no span of time, no span of your life that is wasted by the Lord. He will unfold it and incorporate it into His purpose for you. My psalm reading on Tuesday was from Psalm 57. I, I read it with the staff and it, it struck me then later in the week thinking of Exodus Psalm 57, verse 2 and 3, I cry out to God Most High, to God 
who fulfills His purpose for me. Who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. The Lord doesn't waste any aspect of your life. He will use it for good to fulfill His plan for you. Way on up to 40, 80, 120 years in this life of Moses. Be encouraged. Even if we're working in a place or a position or a job that doesn't seem to match our gifts, our interests, our our sense of calling, God still will and is, is part of His plan for you to form you and use it in every good way for His glory. And God might send one into the wilderness of Midian as it were, to mold and shape and form His servant to His own ways and His own values, not the ways of Egypt. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for those good works, which He's prepared beforehand for those that should walk in them. There is a purpose. There is a plan. It is good. It is glorious for His people. For you, His servant. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for goodness. And He's doing His work, shaping and crafting you, even now. So, Father, we come and we ask for patience. We ask that we would Well, surrender to You those selfish ambitions, the presumptions of getting ahead of You, perhaps even for the right thing, the good thing, but not the right way or the right time. Or perhaps we've just simply, we started in the wilderness. We never even had the palace benefits in the first place. But even there, we can have a chip on our shoulder and a pride that needs to be shaved and chipped and molded and chiseled. And so do that in our hearts and make us to be your servants. And may we wait for you, for you will deliver us and you will fulfill your purpose for us. We come to you in Christ's name. Amen.